Well, this morning we are starting our new sermon series, which will take us the next couple months as we work through the life of David. Not only are we going to work through the narrative of David's life, but we're going to pair that with different psalms that he wrote for different experiences that he went through over the course of his life. I'm really looking forward to these next several weeks and months together as we go through this, um, because David is this portrait of a person who shows the whole range of human experience from loneliness and anxiety and worry and lust and fear and moments of faithfulness and good decisions. And in the midst of all of this type of stuff, there's also this picture of how God's grace continues to work, how His grace continues to redeem and continues to shape and to change our hearts. David's also the character in the Bible that has, he gets the most airtime. I mean, there are more pages of Scripture devoted to David than almost, well, everyone except for this guy named Jesus. But there's, um, David gets the biggest chunk. And not only does the Old Testament talk about him, but the New Testament talks about him as well. We're entering into the story here in 1 Samuel chapter 16. This is roughly the year 1000 B.C., around that time frame, 1,000 years before the birth of Jesus. What has happened is that the people of Israel, God has called Abraham, went to the land, the promised land. Came a nation, moved down to Egypt, grew. God delivered them out of the Exodus. They came, conquered um, Canaan, Palestine, had the land, were living there. They were living there under with God as their leader and God as their ruler. And they would go through these cycles of faithfulness and unfaithfulness. And when they were unfaithful, God would bring a judgment against them. They would cry out to God. God would deliver them. And then they would become unfaithful again. Eventually it gets to the point where the people of Israel say, we're tired of this. We want a king just like all the other nations. We want to be like everybody else. So God says, okay. So he gives them a king like all the other nations, one who was tall and handsome and looked like a king and acted like a king and did exactly what the kings of the pagan nations did. When we come to this passage here in 1 Samuel chapter 16, which is the first introduction that we get of David, where God is selecting a new king for the nation of Israel, a new deliverer. And he is doing so through his prophet, who goes by the name of Samuel. This is what Scripture says. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, the first king? Since I have rejected him from being king over Israel, fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord and invite Jesse to the sacrifice. And I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for for me him who I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded. And he came to Bethlehem. And the elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, do you come peaceably? And he said, peaceably. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons, and he invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. The Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel and said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. 
Then Jesse made Shammah pass by, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, Are all your sons here? And he said, There remains yet the youngest, but behold, he's keeping the sheep. Samuel said to Jesse, Send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes. No food, no eat until he gets here. And he sent him and he brought him in. And now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would send your Holy Spirit, Lord, the same Holy Spirit who rushed upon David. Would you send your Spirit now into our hearts to change our hearts, to reveal our hearts, Lord, to show us your heart and to draw us to it. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. I was so embarrassed and nobody had a clue. I was in my second year of seminary, <clears throat> and I was taking a class from one of my favorite professors. And the class was, I don't know, the class started at about 11 in the morning or so. I think it was the third class period of the day. But it was the first class that I had on Tuesdays and Thursdays. And so I would often get to class a bit early with the intention of studying and find other things to do besides studying when I got there. And so usually what it was, it was a little bit before class, I was going to sit down and study, but you know, maybe I'd study a little bit, get a little bit done, review my stuff for the quiz that I was about to have. And then I just would have all this nervous energy, which I still have to this day. There's always something twitching, some foot tapping, something going on with me. And so I'm in there, and I'm sitting there, and I'm waiting around, and I'm the only one in the room. And so I decide, you know what, I'm just, I'm just, I'm just going to straighten up the room a little bit, straighten up the rows, clean up some of the trash that's in here until, until class starts. So on one of these days, as I'm making myself busy, um, straightening up the rows and picking up some trash, my professor walks in. My professor walks in and he sees me. He says, hey, Walt, thanks for doing that. I said, yeah, sure, no problem. And so we start chatting. We, start, we talk with each other for a little bit and catch up. And as we're talking, he comes over and he starts to straighten up the rows a little bit as well. And as the subsequent you know, classes went by, he would, um, uh, he would start to get to class a little bit early and we would catch up and we would talk. And, and I loved it because I loved this professor. And I really, I loved him, I loved spending time with him, and I really wanted him to like me. And I really wanted him to, I mean, I, I really wanted to spend time with him, and I really wanted him to like me. And the way that this worked out was if I got to class and I started cleaning up the rows, soon he started coming before class, and he would clean up too, and we'd hang out, and we'd talk, and, and what have you. And it was a great time to connect with each other. So after we were doing this for a couple of classes, you know, I decided that I was going to take our relationship, you know, to the next level. So in taking our relationship to the next level, I say to him, what do I ask him? I say, so, how can I pray for you? Because that's what you do, right? I mean, it's particularly if you're in seminary and you want to get to know somebody a little bit more, you ask him, well, how can I pray for you? And as soon as you ask that question, like, the vulnerability meter goes off, right? Because you can know whether or not someone's going to give you a super official answer or they're going to, like, let you in a little bit more in this, right? So if you're going to be spiritual about this and you want to get to know somebody more, you say, so, how can I pray for you? So I say, how can I pray for you? So he shares some things about how I, how I could pray for him. And I, I hope I did. Like, I hope I prayed for him after that. I mean, I really do. Um, 
But usually what happened is that I would say this, and then like the next time I got back to class, I'd see him again, and I'm like, oh, shoot, I was supposed to pray for him, and I didn't pray for him. And so we'd be going through our little straightening up talking, and so uh, we'd get to that awkward pause and didn't know what else to do in the conversation, so I'd say, uh, yeah, so how are these things going that you asked me to pray for? And he'd say, and he'd share a little bit more, and, and I'd say, well, is there, you know, anything, is there anything else I can pray for you for, <laughs> right? I mean, you might as well add it to the list, right? And is there anything else I can pray for you for? And he said, uh, you know, and he'd share some more, and it actually, it, it grew into just a, a great relationship, a relationship that I still have to this day. Well, I don't know, it was a couple months later, I was receiving a recognition, and he happened to be the one that was get, presenting it and giving it out. And so he gets up on the behind the podium, and he's about to give this award, and he says, you know, Walt's going to get this award, and, um, but before I call him up here, I just want to tell you about the heart of this man, and this is a man who has a heart of service, because he would get to class early, and he would clean up the classroom when nobody else was there. And no one else was around, and he would get there, and he would clean up the classroom, and he would straighten up the rows. And I really learned from him, and learned from his heart. And I looked at this, and I said, you know what? I've always let the janitors do this. Why? I can get there early and clean up, start cleaning up too. So I started to get to class early to help clean up and straighten up the room as well, and we would spend some time together. And I was like, oh, my gosh. Like, the only reason why I did it was to spend time with the guy, right? And I'm like, oh, here he goes. And then he goes, and he is a man who has such a heart for prayer. Because more than any other student that I have ever had, he always asked me how he could pray for me. And I knew he prayed for me because the next week when he saw me, he would follow up and ask me how those specific things went. And he would ask if there were other things that he could pray, that he could pray for for me. And I'm like, oh my gosh. Right? I was so embarrassed. He's like, yes, he's a man who has a heart of service heart of prayer, and I'm just so delighted to give, him this to, to give him this recognition, and I come up forward. And I, um, you know, and I was thinking to him, and I was like, I've got to say something. But then I know, I was like, I can't say anything, because it'll completely sell him out, right? I mean, it'll completely sell him out if I did this. And so I just hung my head, and I just walked up, and I got it, and I turned around and walked down. And I was like, oh, Lord, forgive me. <laughs> How much we do not know the heart of another person. How much we do not know the heart of another person. Boy, do we get it wrong. I mean, it happens in situations like that. It happens at other times that, you know, you think you know somebody, you've known someone for months, you've known someone for years, and then bam! Something happens or they tell you something or you find out something unexpected and you're like, how on earth did this happen? I thought I knew this person's heart. But we don't. And we come to this passage here as we begin to look at the, go through the life of David. And what we see here in this passage is both, in, both insight into the heart of God and insight into the heart of man. Insight that's going to be expanded over the subsequent chapters and stories and scriptures in the weeks and months ahead of us. But how we do not know the heart of another. You see, the problem with this and how this begins is that we don't see what God sees. 
We don't see it. We don't see what God sees, and we don't see what God sees because we don't even look for the things that God would look for. We don't even look for these things. When Samuel comes to the house of Jesse, here's what happens. Samuel sees Eliab, and he thinks, surely the Lord is anointed before him. Surely this is the one. Surely this is the man. But what happens? What happens? Why do we mess this up? Why do we not look for what God looks for? Well, it's because our priorities and our values are all out of whack. Now, maybe, I mean, maybe Eliab really was this impressive hunk of manhood. I mean, maybe he just, like, exuded kingliness in everything about him. You know, he's six foot two, he's got great abs, he wears the right cologne, he knows when to wear a three-button suit versus a two-button suit. You know, he makes everybody feel welcome, everybody feel greeted. He's the guy that everybody wants to be around. I mean, maybe, maybe Eliab was an athlete and a scholar. I mean, maybe he was an officer and a gentleman. I mean, maybe he really was a knight with shining armor. But what happens? He sees this. It's convinced that this is God's man. And what does God say to him? Do not look on his outward, on his appearance, or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. And the problem that Samuel has is that man looks on the outward appearance. It's easy to do, is it not? For our values to become so distorted to not look for the right things that we need to look for. I mean, how many times have I had the conversation with people, particularly people who are single? Do they want to get married? Who's the person that you want to marry? Oh, you know, I want to meet somebody who's, you know, you know we get along and someone who loves the Lord and is going to be, you know, help me grow in my faith, someone who really wants to serve the Lord, you know, looking for someone who, of course, who's funny and that we can have a good time with, someone will be a good friend, you know, and I really want someone who's a dedicated follower of Jesus. That's awesome. Great. A couple months go by. Hey, I've got some good news. I met, I met this girl. Oh, that's great. Tell me about her. Well, we click so well. You know, we have such a good relationship. We have so much fun together and goes on and describes, describes her. Oh, and she's beautiful too. What, was she a Christian? Well, yeah, yeah I mean, yeah, yeah of, of, of course she is. That's not an of course she is. That's not an of course answer. Because what you've just kind of told me is the thing that is most remarkable about this person. The things that are most attractive about this person The things that stand out most about her and that you most want other people to know about her is not her faith, is not her walk with the Lord. It is all of the externals that you see here at this moment. It's easy to do, is it not? To be longing for someone in your life, to want to be in a relationship with someone, and you find someone who clicks so well, and you're like, yeah, this must be it. And to not even look for what's going on in the heart. It also happens when... People are looking to, attend, to, to join a church. It happens when churches are looking to hire a new pastor. You know, search committees go out and, you know, who's the, who do they want? You know, they want somebody who looks good on the outside. You know, they want an inspiring, bold leader, someone who preaches with conviction. He's a compassionate shepherd. Someone who is thoughtful a good community networker, and maybe, you know, has such great insight that he's going to possibly, you know, write some books and and put our church on the map. We want someone, we want a church, we want a pastor who looks great on the outside, right? We want that. As Mark Dever, who's a pastor at Capitol Hill Baptist, says, he says, you know, when I tell people in search committees, you know, I tell them when they're looking for a pastor, I say, don't look for a great pastor. Look for a good one. Look for a good one. 
Look for one who's faithful in Scripture, one who's faithful in prayer. Look for someone who repents. Don't look for a great one. Look for a good one. Same thing's true of finding churches and looking for churches. The challenge is, is that we don't see what God sees part, in part because we don't look for what God looks for. And the things that we see neither qualifies nor disqualifies and, in fact, is irrelevant as to what is going on in the heart. Now, as we're looking at this passage here talking about God choosing leaders, let me just give you an update about what's going on here at Cornerstone. Um, this passage has actually been my prayer for the last year plus. And what I've been praying for as we've been looking for another pastor to come on staff is I've been praying that God would give the clarity that he gave to Samuel. And I would ask that you would join us in praying for that same thing. You know, where Samuel, who was a spiritual leader, someone that God had used in many ways, and Samuel's like, this is the guy. And God's like, nope, he's not the guy. How about this one? Not that guy. How about this one? Not that guy. This is the guy, right? And that's what I'm praying for. And I ask that you would join us in praying through that. And so what's happened is that I've been talking to multiple candidates a month over the last year, following up with people. Um, I've gotten a lot of not this one from the Lord. Um, people that just, good guys, just not a fit for the job or not a fit for our context here or for various things. And if I was talking about this a week ago, I would, this, would, this would be a different story. But there's one guy right now who we're, in t- we're c- talking with um, who I've been really encouraged by, encouraged by his his walk with the Lord, um, the sessions interviewed him as well on Skype. And, uh, and so in the next couple of weeks, we're looking to bring him up here um, just to get to know him more, to get to know he and his wife more on a, a, a you know, personal basis, face-to-face basis. So I would just ask that you would join us in praying for the clarity that God gave to Samuel, that God would raise up the right person, and if this is the right person, um, that God would make it clear. If it's not the right person, that God would make that especially clear, and that you'd join us in praying for God to provide the right leaders here at our church. And why do we need this? Because we don't see what God sees. And we don't see what God sees, and yes, at times we don't look for the things that God looks for, but the bigger problem why we need to pray for this and ask for God's guidance is because not only do we not see these things, but we cannot see what God sees. We can't do it. If there is any person who could see what God sees, it was Samuel. I mean, it was time to pick a new king. The last time the people picked a king, they got it wrong. Now, godly Samuel was on the scene. Samuel was God's prophet. He was the visible ambassador of God. Samuel was the voice of God, that when Samuel spoke, it was the voice of God speaking. He was one who was well acquainted with the ways of the Lord. He was the spiritual leader of Israel. He was one who confronted wrong and encouraged right. Samuel was one who carried out God's justice when leaders fell short. It's for this reason that when Samuel shows up in town, hey, your pastoral visit, they are terrified. That the elders came from the city to meet him, and they are trembling, saying, do you come peaceably into this town? They are trembling because God has used Samuel to carry out justice and have divine insight into people's character. If there is ever a person who could discern the heart, it was Samuel. Surely, this faithful, prayerful, insightful, wise, bold voice of God would make the right choice, and he was absolutely wrong. Yes, it is this way. And God says, no, I have rejected him. Why? Because we cannot see 
what God sees. I believe it's actually more of a judgment, not on, this is not so much a judgment on values, but simply it's a statement of reality. It's a statement of our ability. The Lord sees not as man sees. What is it saying? God sees things that we do not have the ability to see. Next verse, man looks at the outward appearance. Well, why does man look at the outward appearance? Because you can't see anything else. That's all that you can see. You don't have the ability to see something else. But God sees not as man sees. That God sees more than you can see. First Kings, they're praying to God and they describe this specific thing. They cry out to him and say, Oh Lord, here in heaven, here in heaven, your dwelling place, and forgive and act and render to each whose heart you know. According to all his ways, for you, you only, know the hearts of all the children of mankind. You only know that. You only can see these things. You know, there are some people who are, who are intuitive people. There are some people who are given, who have the gift of discernment. That they see things that other people don't see. That they, in the same situation, they pick up nuances, reads, body language. You know, women do it. They got that whole, like, woman vibe thing as they, like, scope each other out, you know, when they get together. You know, pick up things and guys are like, oh, where did that come from? And, uh, you know, they p- pick up things and see things on that, right? But oftentimes what happens so often is that people who are inter- intuitive or who do have good discernment somehow think that God has given them a prophetic vision into people's hearts. And think that they actually have the ability to judge someone's heart and to see someone's heart. And it is simply not true. There are some people who have very good people skills. But you do not know another person's heart. Indeed, you cannot know another person's heart. Now, if you've been around the church at all, you know very quickly that it's not about superficiality. We know that it's all about the heart, right? And so the things we say about one another is say, oh, well, you know, you know, I really just know her heart. No, you don't. They're like, oh, well, you know what? He, he's got such a good heart. He's got such a good heart. I, I, I hope so. I, I hope he does. But you don't know that. You see, it is not hard to discern overt wickedness, right? It's not hard to discern when someone's life and conduct is contrary to God's word. But what is hard to discern is godliness. Let me give you an example, not just my own sharing with my college professor. He's such a man of prayer and service. But a couple years ago, there was a girl who called me. She was becoming a student freshman at St. Mary's College, and she called me to find, to, inter- to, to ask about our church. She said she was moving down here. She wanted to get connected to a church. She was calling churches in the area to find this out. It's a good thing. I encourage it. Uh, you know, I get maybe one or two calls like this a summer, maybe one call a summer. The numbers have kind of gone down to that. Um, but it's not uncommon that I get phone calls like that. And so she came down, visited the church before school started, came to church one or two weeks, what have you, after the semester had started. We had her over for lunch, you know, and she shared with me, you know, about, you know, her life and her spiritual journey and, you know, how she became a believer in Christ and how she was a, a leader in her church youth group and went on several mission trips and how she, you know, was, was, has read through the Bible several times in her personal devotions and she's er, earnest in prayer She's seen God answers her, has seen God answer her prayers, and, you know, that she's really excited to be on the campus where she can share the gospel with other people because she knows that that's what God's called her to do. 
and, you know, all these things, like this, uh, of this stuff. And you're like, well, that, that's great. That's great. But for some reason, after three or four weeks of coming here, she didn't come back anymore. Couldn't get a hold of her. And her semester ended with her being passed out in the pond on campus with alcohol poisoning. And guess what was the comment that everyone at home said? She lived, by the way. Um, she was found and taken to the hospital and lived. And guess what the comment that everyone at home said about her? I don't understand how this could happen. She had such a good heart. Well, what happened? Well, I don't know what the state of her heart is, but what I do know is that she longed for approval. And when she was growing up in a family, the oldest child in a family, in a church, in a community, you know, that for those who ever, the way she could get the most approval is that if she was the one who was the Christian leader, who really loved Jesus, who did her devotions, who prayed regularly, who shared the gospel, the one who went on missions trips, man, everybody loved her. Then all of a sudden, when she went to a college campus where those things weren't valued as much as they were back home, and that what got approval was how many guys you could be with, who could drink the most, who could be the wildest and craziest person, which her heart was after, didn't really change. Just what it looked like did, right? Is that we cannot see the heart. So what do we do? That if you don't see what God sees, if we don't even look for the evidence of things that God looks for, if we can't see these things, what are we to do? Well, the best thing that we can do, the best that we can do is to look for evidence of the heart, is to look for evidence and outflows of that. And that takes time. It, take mo- it takes months to see that. And it takes months, and quite frankly, it usually takes months and suffering to see that. And at best, you see the overflows of that, but you do not see the person's heart. So what are we to do? Well, the thing that we probably should have done at the beginning is actually pray and seek God and seek his guidance and seek his wisdom and seek his leading and to not depend on ourselves and not depend on what I see. But instead, cry out to the Lord and say, God, I can't see clearly. I can't see what you see. And what I do see is irrelevant as to the nature of a person's heart. Lord, I cannot do this. I have this huge need. You have the discernment that I lack. How much do we need to do that? Why would I pray about this? The answer is obvious. What, what is, what's there to pray about? I can see all that I need to see. I know what we're supposed to do. I can see all this. I see all the externals. Why ask God? Because you can't see all that you need. And you don't know all that you know, but God does. And it draws us to dependence and draws us to seek him and draws us to pray and to rely on him and to have an active and dynamic relationship with the living God. God sees the heart. He sees what we don't see. He knows the heart. He sees the heart. He sees what I can't see and what I find most sobering about all of this. What I find most sobering is the reality that not only does God see the heart, but God sees my heart. And he knows my heart. And he knows what is going on inside of my heart. And the reality is is that you may hide, you may fool everyone else, you may get recognitions for your spirituality, but you don't fool God. Indeed, Proverbs 21 declares it this way, every way of a man is right in his own eyes. What does that mean? I'm good. 
I know what's going on. I'm good. I got this taken care of. Of course I'm going on the right path. Of course I'm doing the right thing. Of course I'm doing this out of my love for Jesus. Of course I am. But the Lord weighs the heart. But the Lord weighs the heart. God himself declares, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of the deeds. I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind. The Lord sees and tests and weighs the heart. The Lord sees and tests and weighs my heart. Recently, Holly and I decided that our house was too quiet. So we decided to get a dog. Actually, we couldn't decide which dog to get, so we got two dogs. And we got two beagles. This is Snoopy. Snoopy had a troubled childhood. Uh, actually, he did. Snoopy was severely abused. And Snoopy is uh, quite afraid of any men that come in the room. And Snoopy is very afraid of me whenever I'm around. We're starting to, he's starting to get over this a little bit. But the thing that Snoopy does when I come into the room is that Snoopy runs and hides somewhere in our house where he believes that he can see me and I can't see him, right? So he goes over and he hides behind the curtain in the corner and he sticks his nose out as if I don't know where he is. And what he does is he sits there and he watches me and he watches wherever I go thinking that, he, thinking that I don't see him. Boy, do I convince myself that God doesn't see me. Boy, do I convince myself that God only sees and he is so impressed with my fleeting moments of godliness that he hears my scatterbrained, silent prayers, that he hears these silent, momentary prayers, and that God is so impressed with that 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 is all that he sees. And that he is oblivious to my arrogant thoughts or to my lustful and selfish speech. I'm convinced that God is oblivious to the reality that I am far more concerned about the externals of my life than I am about my internals. That I am far more concerned about what other people see in me than what is actually in me. That I am far more concerned about what other people, their perception of my heart, than the reality of what is actually in my heart. I am far more concerned that other people see me sinning than the reality of whether or not I am actually sinning. And I convince myself that God is oblivious and doesn't see any of that. But God sees the heart. He sees what we do not see, and he sees what we cannot see. He even sees what we don't want to see. And yet what continues to amaze me and continues to astound me, even this day astounded by it again, is that even though God sees what we don't see, even though God sees the heart, what astounds me is that God saves us from what he sees. That he sees my heart and the heart of others and he saves us from it. In this passage, the most common root word, the most common word in this passage in Hebrew is the word for provide. It's translated in like 10 different ways in this passage. But it comes from 1 Samuel 16, verse 1. 
where God says to Samuel, Samuel, fill your horn with oil and go. And I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite. For I have provided for myself a king among his sons. I have provided for myself, not for you, but for myself. I have provided for myself a king among his sons. I have raised up a king for me. Why does God do that? Because we're unable to do it ourselves. That the people tried to provide a king for themselves and they utterly failed. That the people tried to live for God and they were miserable at it. And so God comes in and not only does he see the corruption, not only does he see the deception of everyone's heart, but he sees those things and he says, and I will save you from it. He says, I will provide for myself a king. Well, who was this king future deliverer of the people of Israel. Who was this king that God provided? Externally, he was a nobody. He was the youngest son of Jesse. So much so that when Samuel says to Jesse, bring all your sons out here, he's like, how about this one? Samuel's like, not that one. How about this one? Not that one. How about this one? Not that one. He's so obscure that when Samuel continues to do this, and Samuel's like, is this all you got? Jesse's like, well, uh, well, you know, there is the youngest one, but there's no need to invite the youngest because he's out there staying with the sheep. Why don't we invite him? And this one from God is so obscure, this youngest is so obscure, that we are not even told his name until the last verse in this section. He's referred to as the one who's with the sheep, the youngest one. He's not even referenced by name. And these guys who weren't king are, referen- are referenced by name. Yet the man, yet this was the man that God provided to rescue God's people and to deliver them from his enemies. It is this is the man that God said, this is the one, anoint him. He is the one that I have chosen. And what David does in the experience of David's life of what God has done in providing himself for himself a king is a foreshadow of David's greater son, his own descendant, his greater son, Jesus Christ. The one who people at the time of Jesus could not see, who did not see what God was providing in Jesus Christ. The one who today, people do not see what God is providing in Jesus Christ. The one who, Scripture describes this way, that he, Jesus, had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we, and we esteemed him not. Yet surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. It is astounding that not only does God see our hearts, but he saves our hearts through Jesus Christ. And so it is to God that we cry out with David, that we cry out and should cry out and need to cry out, that we cry out with David, create in me a clean heart, O God. Create in me a clean heart. Because I cannot do it my own. 
Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. And God, it is God to whom we cry out that prayer, and it is God who responds through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for all who turn and believe and trust in him. God says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove from you a heart of stone and from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and to be careful to obey my rules. And I will deliver you from all your uncleannesses. God saves us from what he sees. God saves the deception of our heart through Jesus Christ and through whom he sends his spirit to redeem our hearts and to renew our hearts because God saves us through Jesus Christ. We don't see what God sees. We don't even look for it. Indeed, we cannot see what God sees. But hallelujah, God saves us from what he sees. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come before you. And Father, I tremble at the thought of what you see in my heart. Father, I tremble at the thought of the things you see that I hide, not only from other people, but things that I hide even from myself. And Lord, I tremble at the thought of that. And yet, Lord, I am overwhelmed with awe and with joy that when you see that, and when you see the depths of my heart, that you don't run from it, but you run to it. I thank you, Lord, that you see and you, you alone, O oh Lord, know the hearts of men and women and children. Lord, you alone can see all and know all. Lord, you alone know these things. You see it and you decided to save us from what you see. Father, there are brothers and sisters here who are trembling at the things that they see. And Lord, we join together and we cry out that, yes, Lord, that you would create in us a clean heart, O God, that you would renew in us a right spirit because we cannot do it on our own and we can only do it because you have decided to do it. So, Lord, create in us a clean heart. And Father, there are others here for whom the thought of what they get glimpses of in their heart is too disturbing to consider any further, so they would just rather distract themselves and not deal with it. And so, Father, I pray that this truth and the reality that you see our hearts and you know the depths of our hearts, Lord, would not cause them to cower in fear, would not cause them to run and hide behind curtains, but rather that they would be drawn into the light, that they would be drawn to you, because you are the one who sees us and saves us from so much more than we see. Father, send your spirit. Create in us a clean heart. 
Restore to us the joy of salvation, and Lord, may we never lose the awe and wonder that you see us and you save us through Jesus Christ. And to that we say, hallelujah. Amen.